0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 329, Forkbeard. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Wilson, James, and Colby for signing up already. When you go to your local grocery store, there's a pattern to it. You go down your usual aisles, you grab your bread, your tea, that thing you know you're not supposed to eat, but you do anyway because it's delicious and you have no self-control. And then when you head to the register, something happens. You get in line right behind the person who is at the register before you. Now you don't know them and you don't technically owe them anything but you let them check out before you do because they got in line first. And you can assume most of the time that the stranger behind you will do the same for you. And this isn't the result of a law. If you decide to cut to the front of the line, you're not going to be arrested. Though you might be arrested if it starts a fistfight. Those are usually illegal and they fall under different laws depending on where you live. But we almost never get to that law. Most of the time, everyone just gets in line. And this is how most of society works day in and day out, through a network of small shared rules that are so common that they're rendered nearly invisible. These are called norms. And anyone who has spent time in a culture other than their own has had the deeply unsettling experience of not having the correct set of norms needed to move around successfully. And that's a feeling called culture shock. But every society has norms, both big and small, and most of them grow organically. Some of them are very old, and many of them speak to the ideological beliefs that undergird the society that holds them. Here's another example of a norm that most of us deal with every day. When you go to eat at a restaurant in both American and British society, you can be expected to be left alone by the other guests. You can sit down and eat in peace, and for the most part, you'll only deal with your waiter your bartender, or the people that you came to the restaurant with. But as for the other strangers in the restaurant, you're not going to talk to them. And in turn, you're expected to leave everyone else alone as well. Now imagine what would happen if you decided to suddenly violate that norm. If you sat down right next to a total stranger in a restaurant and just helped yourself to the chips off their plate and started up a conversation. How would that feel? Well, the Americans listening to this scenario just got nervous and the British listeners just got nauseous. There's a kind of instant social chaos when norms are violated, even if nobody's heard in the process. But there also can be a sort of power to them. For example, imagine that the person whose meal you're interrupting is a politician known for committing war crimes. In that case, your transgression is actually sending a message. But at the same time, there's a flip side to the power of those norms. And it's one that's been borne out in decades of social research because norms are generally unspoken. And because they're often unnamed, they rely on a silent, unthinking consensus, which means that when a norm is broken, often nothing happens. If you actually chose to cut in that line at the grocery store, the most likely thing that will happen statistically and scientifically is that everyone around you is gonna pretend that it isn't happening. They might stand uncomfortably and watch as you check out your bread, your tea, and that cheesecake. And they might even tweet about it later, but that's probably as far as it's gonna go because norms are so seamless and well, just normal, that asserting them once they've been broken actually takes effort. It requires that the ones not violating the norms make themselves even more uncomfortable in order to reestablish that norm. So the person who actually is in the right and says, hey, you cut in line, will have a worse time at the grocery store if they speak up. And as a result, you, the line cutting cheesecake eater, can just get away with it. And if you happen to have some sort of power in society, if you're rich or you're famous or you have an important job, or even if you're just part of a dominant ethnic group or gender, you are even more likely to get away with violating norms. And by violating these norms, you're often able to gain access to even more social power. You're going to get your groceries first. You have the advantage. And this was something that Athelred and his court knew all too well. The king and his court had been making out like bandits by thumbing their noses at the norms which underpinned Anglo-Saxon society. And it was a society that they sat at the very top of. So what was anyone going to do about it? Now, naturally, they weren't the first to figure this out. If you look back at the reigns of Alfred and Athelstan, you'll see plenty of moments where they also violated norms. For example, the way they dealt with the church, how they acquired lands, how they handled their wars, and how they dealt with the Witan all involved some pretty heavy norm violating. And looking to more modern times, we've seen all kinds of leaders who violated norms. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt packed the American courts. That was a norm violation. Another president, Lyndon B. Johnson, not only violated norms, he used the human tendency to pretend that it isn't happening as a strategy itself. For example, he was known for appointing officials to commissions that they had specifically asked to not be appointed to. and He would just go and publicly announce that they were appointed, because LBJ knew that these officials would rather take the unwanted appointment than go through the embarrassment of publicly defying the president. Now this of course was the same American president who made rivals take meetings with him while he was on the toilet. Like he would literally bring them into the bathroom and stare them down. And actually once he peed on a secret service agent who was protecting him, just because. And when the agent objected, LBJ responded, it's my prerogative. LVJ was a total weirdo, but he was also a norm-violating savant because he seemed to recognize that you can get away with an astounding amount if you're the right combination of powerful and audacious. And by openly violating norms, you can actually cultivate a sense that you're socially invincible. But if you look at what Alfred, FDR, Athelstan, and even LBJ did, there was a strategy to it or at least a degree of restraint. They didn't just run around breaking every social rule they could find. Because one of the reasons why we instinctively freeze when a social norm is violated is due to the potential that those moments can escalate. If you cut in line, you might find yourself with a black eye. If you cut in line a lot, especially in front of the same person, that black eye starts to become much more likely. And that's just a grocery store. If you break the norms of a nation or a kingdom, you might find yourself in the middle of a revolution or a coup. Especially considering the fact that once you start breaking a norm, that norm begins to hold less power. And sometimes that's good because many norms can be harmful and in fact silently reinforce the unfair social hierarchies that underlie them. And that specifically is what makes it really dangerous for the people on top of those hierarchies to thumb their noses at the norms without any strategy or plan because oftentimes they are in power because of those norms athelred was king because centuries of anglo-saxon culture had built up the norms and laws of a monarchy the peasantry and the nobility were both socially and legally bound to obey that hierarchy. And in return, the king was also socially bound to provide certain things to the kingdom. Ultimately, the king and the nobility were tasked with keeping the kingdom running and keeping it safe. That's why they're often tasked with military matters and why they handle infrastructure and why they deal with organizing and directing the ship of state. But the higher up in the chain of hierarchy that you go, the more that this duty transfers into the realm of norms and not laws. And at the very top, for the king and those closest to him, there was nobody who was capable of reasserting those norms once they were broken. And the trouble here was Athelred and his court had figured out that they could get fantastically wealthy if instead of focusing on what was good for the kingdom, they instead focused on what was good for them personally. And that had been working for them. Time and time again, Athelred and his inner courtiers were violating norms and advancing their interests. They would flat out ignore generations old lines of inheritance and gain lands and titles as a reward. They would neglect their duties to maintain infrastructure and keep the cash that they should have spent. They failed to train themselves or their armies for war and in return, they were able to go out and party. Under this court, Any hint of the honor culture that had underpinned Anglo Saxon nobility had vanished. And in its place was a voracious court all looking out for number one, even in matters of life and death. By breaking with the norms that dictated noble duties, self interest began to eat away at the kingdom. And it wasn't just the king and his inner council who were looking out for themselves anymore. At a certain point, norms aren't just broken, they're gone. And while the nobility descended into ignorant decadence and infighting, many of the lower nobles followed suit. And that was a huge problem, because at the same time, Athelred was busy making foreign enemies. In less than two years, he had ravaged two kingdoms that were allied with the Scandinavians and tried to ravage a third. He'd also interrupted Scandinavian relations with Normandy through his marriage to Emma. And then, according to Athelred's own charter, he'd murdered large numbers of Scandinavians in England, simply based on the fact that they were Scandinavian. And according to legend, one of those killed during that massacre was the sister of King Swain Forkbeard of Denmark and Norway. Athelred's foreign policy, much like his domestic policy, was short-sighted. That show of strength must have made him feel tough. But it wasn't tough. It was weak, and a leader who possessed actual strength would have been able to see that miles away, or in this case, about 500 miles away, because the English court had been getting away with murder, sometimes literally, but just because there were no immediate repercussions didn't mean that there weren't consequences. And now, in 1003, Athelred had a boatload of consequences coming his way. Quite a few boatloads, in fact. King Swain Forkbeard of Denmark and Norway had just finished his war with Olaf Tryggvason, which had ended with Olaf's death and the crown of Norway returning to Swain's control. And that meant he had some time on his hands. And I'm sure it hadn't escaped his notice that the war over Norway just happened to kick off after England sent Olaf back to the kingdom as a very rich man with a lot of fighters. I'm also sure it hadn't escaped Swain's notice that Athelred had massacred a large number of Danes in his kingdom, including, according to the legend, Swain's own sister. And beyond that, Swain was a man of large ambitions. He wasn't just the king of Denmark. He was the king of Denmark and Norway, and he was also allied with Sweden, closely linked with the Vikings, and until recently, very close to Duke Richard II of Normandy. Swain Forkbeard was one of the most powerful men in Northern Europe, if not the most powerful man. But I think the one thing we can be sure of here is that he definitely did want to be the most powerful man. And the trouble there is that over the course of about a year, two major Viking safe harbors, Strathclyde and the Isle of Man, have been ravaged by the King of England. And as for Normandy, well, we can surmise that based on the sudden absence of raiders in England... Athelred's marriage to Emma had worked, and those Norman ports were now closed to Viking fleets. And it's important to remember here that Swain, much more than his forebears, was a Viking king. He was a raider. And even if he didn't care about the St. Brice's Day Massacre, the fact was that Athelred had already done plenty to get Forkbeard's attention. The English court had armed his enemy, and now it was shutting down lucrative Viking ports. And it was likely this desire to reopen those ports, rather than a desire for vengeance over the massacre, that inspired what happened next. King Swain called his subjects, readied his fleets, and sailed south to England. And he was going there with one of the largest fleets in living memory. Soon, the shores of Britain came into view, and they kept sailing past the old territories of the Danelaw and past the Thames estuary. Then they rounded the corner and sailed beyond Kent and moved directly on Exeter. Not London, not Canterbury, not Ipswich, nor Rochester, nor any of the other wealthy targets that had acted as magnets to previous raiding fleets. No, they went to Exeter. Why? Well, you might remember that Exeter has been in the story quite a lot lately. And first, it had been heavily ravaged by that Viking army that kept wintering on the Isle of Wight. But then it came back in the story when Emma became queen and was renamed Elfgifu, because she was given some lands as part of her dower. And those lands included Exeter. So here we have King Swain Forkbeard making a beeline to ravage Queen Emma Elfgifu's lands. And that's why I suspect that Swain wasn't looking to get revenge for the St. Bryce's Day Massacre. I think this was about money. And Swain was looking to make a show of force in order to interrupt the new alliance between Normandy and England. And thus, return things to the status quo. Where Normandy would act as a Scandinavian allied outpost in the south. And what Swain did was quite a show of force. Ship upon ship began appearing on the horizon and making their way towards the land just outside of Exeter. And these ships just kept coming. And as for Exeter, well, while those lands did belong to Queen Emma, it wasn't like she was out there organizing the defenses and unleashing the strategic bee reserves. This was a different era, and she wasn't Lady Athelflad. Instead, Emma was elsewhere, likely far from danger with Athelred's court. But beyond that, she just wasn't expected to directly administer and run her lands. I mean, these lands were hers, but they were hers in the way that they were a source of income. Not that they were her responsibility to run. Emma was a high-ranked lady in a kingdom that wasn't too fond of women in power. And so, she was expected to leave the day-to-day administration of her lands to someone else. Namely, to a man. And that is how Hugh, a French count ended up running Devonshire. And fair play to Hugh. That was quite the promotion. Devonshire, despite the recent Viking raids, was a wealthy territory, and it had been the seat of power for the king's mother and her family. And now, it was his. Mostly. I mean, he did have to answer to Emma, but he was really running the show here. So things were looking pretty good for Hugh. And then, all these longboats started rowing up the Exmouth and they were headed directly to the crown jewel of his shire, Exeter. And somehow, King Swain's army managed to get past the defenses, destroy the walls of Exeter, and storm the city. And as for how they managed to pull that off, well, Florence of Worcester, who gives us the fullest account of this event, simply blames it on, quote, the evil counsel, negligence, or treachery of the Norman Count Hugh, end quote. The Chronicle confirms this by saying, quote, Exeter was stormed on account of the French churl Hugh, end quote. But we don't know specifically if it was cowardice, treachery, or just good old-fashioned incompetence that caused the city to fall. But fall it did. And quickly, thanks, somehow, to Hugh. And Swain's army wasted no time sacking the city. We're told that the burgh was completely destroyed and pillaged and huge amounts of loot and likely slaves were loaded onto his ships. But Swain wasn't done yet. Next, he moved on to Wiltshire and Hampshire, to Elderman Elfridge's territory. And King Swain was likely familiar with Elfridge, as he was partially responsible for the Dane that Forkbeard received at the end of his last English campaign. So my guess is he knew exactly what sort of man Elfridge was. And considering that Elfrich was tasked with the defense of the region, perhaps Swain was seeking some easy money in the form of yet another Danegeld. But times had changed. This wasn't the same Elfrich who had abandoned the fleet over a decade ago, nor the same Elfrich who had looted his own lands in order to avoid the risk of having to fight the Vikings in the field. By this point, Elfrich had lost his son, he'd lost his position on the council, he'd lost so much. And this time... Rather than rushing to pay off Swain, he arranged an army. A vast army, consisting of the ferns of both Hampshire and Wiltshire. The Chronicle refers to this force as, quote, a great English army, end quote. And it was a good thing that it was, because what Swain had brought to war was also enormous. But it was time for payback. And unlike Swain's soldiers, Elfrich and his men weren't fighting for mere money they were fighting for their homes, for their families, and for their own lives. And we're told that with the great English army gathered, and with Elfrich at the head of it, they marched, quote, very resolutely towards the enemy, end quote. And it was an enemy that wasn't hard to find. A force that size can't be hidden all that well, especially in unfamiliar lands. So before long, the English army approached King Swain and his Scandinavian forces. The Ferd arranged into lines. They were armed with swords and spears, and on command of their officers, they raised their shields, locked themselves into their shield walls, and looked to Elfridge for the command to advance. And Elfridge, fulfilling the duty held by the Harthorod for generations, looked over his own forces, and he immediately faked having an illness. Seriously. And this wasn't the first time. In telling the story, the Chronicle states Elfrich, quote, was up to his old tricks, end quote. And as a consequence, right before the battle was to commence, Elfrich, who should have been at the head of the force protecting these lands, after all, he was an elderman and that was pretty much his whole purpose for existing, well, he began to wretch and literally called in sick to work. And if you think I'm exaggerating, here's the quote. Quote, as soon as they were so close that each army looked on the other, he feigned him sick and began to retch to vomit and said he was taken ill, end quote. Nice, right? And as shameful as that is, it was honestly pretty well in keeping with the culture that had grown in the age of Athelred. Every time that Elfrich was expected to put his life on the line for the good of the kingdom, he opted to go through door number two and live to not fight another day. Because Burtnoth, he wasn't. And neither were many of his compatriots. The norms that had driven the noble culture of previous generations had been bent to the point of breaking. And now, they're essentially gone. So of course, Elfridge was faking sick. It would have been more shocking if he actually went to war. And upon seeing their leader either throw up from panic or fake throwing up to get out of the fight, the morale of the English army broke. Because when you see your boss as an idiot and a coward, it's hard to be all that inspired. And so, to the amusement of the Vikings, this great English army fled into the countryside as fast as their legs could carry them, before a single blow was struck. And so, Swain and his Vikings decided to throw a celebratory raid as a get-well present for Elfridge. And they ravaged their way through Wessex, struck Wilton, broke into the burr, and burned it down. The devastation of Wilton was so complete that it forced the moneyers located there to move to another, safer burr. And in addition to the loss of the towns, the disruption of this minting operation was a blow to the English currency. And meanwhile, Forkbeard got his hands on a lot of gold and silver. But they weren't done yet. To top off the campaign, Swain's army marched on Salisbury and sacked it. And only then did they return to their ships with as much wealth as they could carry with them. All in all, it had been a pretty good adventure. And when something works, it works. So in the following year of 1004, King Swain and his fleet came back. And with Exeter demolished, he set his sights on other targets. And interestingly, they were also targets that were very close to Normandy. First, he hit Norwich, and he hit it hard. The fleet had come so suddenly and with so many ships that England couldn't arrange an effective defense. Before the crown had a chance to even arrange an army, Norwich was completely ravaged and the burr at the center of it was burned down. And the ferocity of that attack, combined with the apparent helplessness of the English crown to do anything about it, led the local nobility to try and buy peace with Swain. So Ulfgill, along with other East Anglian nobles, went to King Swain and asked for the price of his Danegeld. And matters like this would require some degree of negotiation. So a truce was established while Swain and Ulfgill tried to work out the particulars. And that took time. An unusual amount of time. In fact, according to the Chronicle, about three weeks had passed since the sacking of Norwich. And still a truce was on while they negotiated. And that delay was making the Vikings antsy. So, Swain ordered his army to sneak off their ships and make their way inland to Thetford. And there, they were ordered to do what they do best. Pillage and burn. But Ulfkel had spies everywhere. And the Vikings were spotted leaving their encampment. Which was obviously a problem for the raiders. But the bigger problem was that Ulfkel wasn't cut from the same cloth as Elfrich. He was old school. He was a fighter. And now that the Vikings were in the field, he had a chance to end this problem once and for all. Because Swain's ships were still there, just outside of Norwich. So Ulfkel gathered some trusted saboteurs and instructed them to sneak out to Forkbeard's ships and destroy them. Burn them, hew them to splinters, do whatever you need to do to render them useless. This Scandinavian king had been using the speed of his ships to run circles around the English army and devastate the kingdom with hit and run strikes. But if those ships were destroyed, well, that would change everything. So the saboteurs were sent out. It's going down for- and they failed. Of course they did. We aren't told how, we were merely told that, quote, whom he intended for this failed him, end quote. And so Ulfkel turned to his backup plan. Swain and his army were on land. And that meant that if they wanted to get back on their ships, they'd have to come through here. So Ulfkel quickly arranged his army and prepared for a fight. And some scholars suggest that his forces weren't just the furred of East Anglia, but he also managed to get Wulfrich's spot, one of the king's chief men and the leader of the Mercians to join with him, and obviously bringing who knows how many men with him. And as a result of this, Ulfkill had a sizable force. But the Chronicle also makes sure to point out that this wasn't East Anglia's full force. It seems that even with a three-week delay, there were some nobles who weren't bringing their soldiers to the field. Not even when Ulfgil who appears to have been the acting Elderman of East Anglia, called. But no matter. Ulfkill would stand and he would fight, and so would his warriors. Now, all they had to do was wait for their enemy to come to them. And it wasn't a long wait. Swain's raid on Thetford was brutal. They ravaged the area and they'd burned down the burr. But it was also quick. It took only a single night. And in the morning, as they returned to their ships, Hired from a long night of pillaging, Swain and his men found Ulfgill and his army lined up before them. And unlike Elfridge, Ulfgill was ready to go. And so were his men. So they locked their shields and... No, it really was going down for real this time. The English didn't break. They didn't run. They didn't panic. Instead, they advanced on Swain and his army and fought with everything they had. But they weren't warriors, not like Swain's army, who were professional raiders. No, what Ulfgill was leading were mostly heavily armed farmers. They were the National Guard on their weekend rotation, and they were trying to take on the special forces. And as a consequence, they were dying in droves. And possibly among the dead was Wolfrich Spot himself. But Ulfgell had seen something in them. He placed his trust in these men. And he and his war band were fighting resolutely. And that had bolstered the morale of the rest of the Ferd. So they kept fighting. They kept hacking away at the Danes. And as the day raged on, Swain's army couldn't escape the butcher's bill. Their casualties had been mounting. But at the same time, they had no choice but to keep fighting. Because if they couldn't get onto their ships they would all die right here on this stretch of coastline. But the losses that they began to suffer were terrible. Both sides now were getting slaughtered. But the fighting was brutal, with horrendous losses on both sides. And among the losses were the English nobles, what the Chronicle calls the Flower of East Anglia. And eventually, it was just too much for the English army to bear. And soon thereafter, the battle turned and Swain and his Vikings were able to fight their way through the English lines, disperse them, and get back to their ships. The scribes tell us that had Ulfgell's army been at full strength, the Danes would have been stopped there. But unfortunately, not everyone answered Ulfgell's call for help. And compounding the problem, his saboteurs hadn't burned down Swain's ships. And thus... Even though the leaders of East Anglia and presumably Mercia, along with portions of their furred, had fought bravely, and even though large numbers of them were now dead, Swain and his army had survived, and they continued their campaign in England. But the defense that Ulfkell had put up was so ferocious and so impressive that he became famous in Scandinavia. Skald spoke of him in poems and epics with admiration and he became known as Ulfgil Snelling, Ulfgil the Bold. And as for East Anglia, the Norse began to refer to it as Ulfkill’s land. But the fact remains that that battle was a loss, and Swain was still in England. It seemed that nothing could bring this menace to an end. Most of England's nobility simply weren't up to the task. And those that were kept finding themselves on suicide missions because they weren't given enough support. And then England was struck by an even greater enemy. The kingdom was hit by what the Chronicle calls the Great Famine. And the scribes record that it was so severe, quote, that no man ever remembered one so cruel, end quote. And as the famine raged, Elderman Ordwolf of Devon, the king's own uncle, died. Then, compounding the specter of death that haunted Athelred's court, one of his sons by Elfgifu, Egbert, also died during this period, which meant that he was now down to five living sons from his Anglo-Saxon wife. It's not clear whether or not this was connected to the famine, but the famine was terrible. However, the black horse did have one small mercy, That English famine of 1005 was so cruel that even Swain Forkbeard's army faced starvation as they tried to continue their raiding throughout southern England. There simply wasn't enough food for them to steal. And so, at long last, King Swain Forkbeard's army left England. The nobles' mismanagement of the country had paid off. Kind of. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, pretty much everything, and you can find links to all of them in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.